Unless you remain standing, let me ask you if you can see in your bulletin or if you want to turn in your Bible to our scripture this morning, Luke 22, 14 to 20. And uh, in looking at this scripture, we're, I decided we would just use it as a preparation to coming from the, Lord, to the Lord's table. I know you do this every week, but I thought, well, it'd be interesting to just take a moment and reflect on what we're doing, as I'm sure you have done many times in coming to the Lord's table. This is, of course, um, celebrating the occasion when Jesus transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper on that Easter week, on that Thursday night. And uh, we, that's the context that we're reading when uh, Jesus is speaking in Luke 2, or 22, and we'll begin at verse 14 and read down through 20. And when the hour came, he, that is Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless us as we study it together. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, there's much that can be and should be said about the Lord's Supper as we celebrate this time together. And uh, we have studied it, no doubt you've studied it many times, both from 1 Corinthians 11 and from the passages in the gospel. But I think it bears, um, bears careful examination as we come. And usually when we we study about the Lord's Supper, we think of it primarily theologically. We might be thinking of the way it's described in our Westminster Confession of Faith. In the Shorter Catechism, question number 96 says this, what is the Lord's Supper? And the answer is the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a corporal and carnal nature, that is not in a literal sense, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment in growth and grace. And that you could study that passage, which what it is, it's, it's a, a, an interpretation, it's an application of what the Bible teaches regarding the Lord's Supper. And it looks at it regarding the, the, based on the history of what happened that, came, that established this supper. The Lord looks back on the great act of deliverance in Israel. And make, make no mistake, when you think through the Bible, when you read through the Bible, the great, this great act of deliverance, the original Passover, is constantly referred to as perhaps the greatest deliverance that God ever delivered his people with. And of course, that's the story of when the children of, of Isra, uh, the Israelis were in Egypt, they were in bondage, and God sent Moses, he 
uh, was used by God to bring uh, 10 or nine judgments on uh, the Egyptians. And the 10th one was to be the death of the firstborn of each family. But God spared his people by the application of blood. In other words, uh, before a death angel came, they were instructed to place blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. And when the death angel passed over, he, or when the death angel came, he would pass over those homes and spare the life of the firstborn. And of course, that passage has huge implications for what it means for us as believers, the shedding of blood that protects us. And of course, it points to an even greater deliverance in what the Lord Jesus Christ did on that Easter week when he went to the cross and bore the, the, the penalty for the sins of all of us who know Christ, of all, all his people, and then was gloriously resurrected on what we call Easter Sunday. And in other words, this de- deliverance dwarfed what happened to the Israelis in Egypt. And this is a wonderful picture regarding the past, pointing to a greater deliverance in the blood of Jesus who broke the power of sin and death and delivers us. But also this, this uh, theologically looking, we not only regard the past, but regards to the future. The Lord's Supper looks forward to a time uh, of Christ when he, is com- when he comes again to consummate his kingdom. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 11, which is the, another passage about the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul writes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are taking this meal by faith, but there's some time in the future when we will take it in, by sight. We will interact with the Lord Jesus Christ in person. And this is, in a way, this is rehearsal. That's what you're doing. You're rehearsing here for when you will interact with the Lord Jesus. And uh, the intimacy of this meal will be replaced with actual fellowship with him in his presence. It points to the future. It points back to the past. And it also prepares us for the present. Regarding the present, the Lord's Supper is my testimony before a watching world. What you do in a few minutes is your testimony before a watching world which shows forth Christ's atoning death for our sins, shows your faith if you have trusted in him as Lord and Savior, and shows your desire to walk closely with him and live obediently in your relationship with Christ. And so we are promised that we will enjoy all the benefits of union with him. In other words, if it ever becomes illegal in Tuscaloosa, to be a Christian. Your adversaries, your accusers need only ask you, have you ever eaten the Lord's Supper? In fact, we have evidence, we have pictures, we have people that will tell us that you celebrated the Lord's Supper. And you say, yes. He'll say, case closed. We don't have to go anywhere else to prove that this person is breaking the law if it ever comes to that because he's been to the Lord's table and publicly proclaimed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you and I are doing as we come together. There's no contest 
And therefore, this is a confirming meal before a watching world, before our own hearts, before one another. It's not a converting meal. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. It's a confirming meal. And, uh, and it's a great theological meaning to what we're doing here. And we can go on and discuss from a theological perspective what uh, the Lord's Supper means. But I want to take this morning, very briefly, a little more of a Christological a pers- view of the Lord's Supper. In other words, to look at the Lord's Supper really from Christ's perspective of what's going on here. Because in this passage in Luke chapter 22, there's a startling phrase that Jesus says to his disciples, and I believe by extension to us as well. What does Jesus say in, first, in verse 15? He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Literally, that means with desire I have desired. If you look at the Greek, it's a very passionate phrase. He earnestly desired to eat this meal with his followers. You see, Jesus is doing more than changing the observance of of the Old Testament Passover and transforming it into a communion meal into the Lord's Supper that will establish for all time that time of fellowship between him and his people, both Jew and Gentile. He is also meeting with men, his men, in an intimate meal. And we don't need to pass over that. We don't need to ignore the fact that this is an intimate meal between Jesus and his followers that he really wanted. Jesus wanted this with his followers shortly before their whole world would collapse. And you know this context here, and certainly the disciples were clueless because they were following the rock star. Jesus had been elevated in, 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 uh, in three short years, uh, from being merely a, a one of many rabbis wandering around in Israel. And suddenly, he is the rock star, not only of Israel, but perhaps the whole Roman Empire, indeed the world. Because he, they had watched and been with him. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him heal, heal countless people. They had seen him... Um, teach and spar with his adversaries and he always had an answer which which shut up his enemies and crowds were flocking to see him. Now imagine you're just maybe a a little Israeli shepherd and maybe poorly educated and this man comes along and picks you and you find it very strange and then you are confronted with some of the most astounding messianic activity. I mean, you know enough of your Bible to see the connections and he wants you to be his follower and you're there with him and you watch day after day supernatural things happen. The world is being turned upside down. Your world is being turned upside down. And suddenly you realize, you know, I'm, I'm one of his chief lieutenants. I'm one he goes for for help. I'm one that he talks to. I'm one that he teaches. And uh, you can imagine how unbelievable it would be for these disciples who were certain that finally the deliverer of Israel is going to come. He's going to crush Rome. He's going to uh, remove the Roman Empire and establish his kingdom on this earth. And I'm right here with him. 
I'm one who is beside him. Those hated Romans don't know what's coming. In fact, I can, the reason I know that is because you can see the tension in a few verses later in verse 24 where Jesus says, well, where the text says that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Why were they arguing with that? Well, because they were going to be the greatest because they're serving under the greatest. And uh, you can imagine the delight when you come to that Thursday, what they imagined was going to happen. And then in a matter of a few hours, their whole world is shattered. Their whole world collapses in a few hours, all their expectations will, will, will be shot. All their expectations will shatter. The king of Israel will be rudely arrested, unjustly tried, brutally tortured, and then shamefully executed. And as a result, not only will their expectations be shattered, but their fears will grow. Jesus will be gone. They will become public enemies, number one. And very likely, the state and religious authorities who took out Jesus won't stop with him. And rightfully do we find in John chapter 20, verse 19, we find them hiding secretly for fear of the Jews, for fear of the retaliation of the Jews. I mean, it was the day before they were on top of the world. And now they're criminals in grave danger, their expectations shattered, their fears growing, and thirdly, their failures will haunt them now. When they let Jesus down, when they did the wrong thing, when they really didn't believe him, you know, Judas will betray him. Peter denied him three times as predicted, and all the disciples scattered. What a shameful thing to do. When, Je that when Jesus goes through what he went through and they departed. And yet, verse 15 says, Jesus earnestly desired to eat this meal with them. He earnestly desired. And uh, I, let me suggest, as we come to the Lord's table, three reasons that Jesus earnestly desired to eat this meal with him. Because he wanted to teach three things. The first is that he is in control. That he is in control. All that was happening, the Westminster Confession says, was according to his appointment. Let me go back to the confession. And the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death was showed forth. Now, of course, the appointment included that Jesus scheduled the meal he arranged for the place. He arranged for the elements, the bread and the wine to be a part of that meal. He arranged for all that to be there. But in reality, Jesus had been staging this event since Genesis chapter three. Those shepherds were clueless, uh, those uh, disciples were clueless. But Jesus had been planning this moment since it was predicted in Genesis chapter three when God told Satan, that he, singular he, shall bruise your head and it shall, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That great uh, prediction 
of the completed work of Christ. And you look throughout the Old Testament and the various um, uh, incarnated appearances or the pre, excuse me, the pre-incarnated appearances of Jesus throughout the Old Testament affirm these events. The prophecies of the Old Testament predict exactly what's going to happen to Jesus. His side will be pierced. His, uh, he will be spit upon. All kinds of things that would become fulfilled in the, these next few days were predicted. In other words, this was a catastrophe for the disciples, but it's precisely what Jesus wanted. And he wanted his disciples to know, I'm in control. I'm preparing to be the, for victory. You see only defeat. And it's interesting to realize that what was a catastrophe to the disciples was a part of Jesus' appointed plan. In reality, the reality is that he continues to appoint things in the unfolding of his providential decrees in my life and in your life. So often we come upon certain things that we think it's going to go one way and our, you know, our expectations are shattered. You know, we thought marriage would go a certain way. We thought our children would turn out a certain way. We thought we would be able to retire together. We thought that we would have good health. We thought we might have a great career. We thought our parents would be happy forever. All kinds of expectations. And in a sinful world, invariably those things are shattered. And we may even come to the point of, this is a catastrophe. I don't know what's going to happen. But we turn to the Lord Jesus and remember that just before the catastrophe of what happened with him from a human perspective... He was carefully appointing things, carefully planning, carefully unfolding his perfect will. Jesus desires for us to eat this meal with him so he can remind us that he's in control, that he's working out. No circumstance in our life is not under his gracious control and his loving plan as he is unfolding in us. Are we failures? Absolutely. At times we contribute to our own disasters, but a loving Lord Jesus Christ is carefully appointing things for his glory. Uh, One of my fellow workers uh, at Briarwood was the head of the mercy ministry, Chris Thompson, and we had our offices next to each other. And I remember one day he ducked in and said, could you uh, sit in with me on an interview? And, um, You've got to understand in a, in a really big church, he dealt with mercy ministries. Many times people from outside the church would come and need help. And there was a lady that came and he just was a little, she was a little sketchy and he just wanted somebody to be with him in case, you know, just she wanted to be safe and secure about it. But so we sat down with her in the office and this was a, a lady who had everything go wrong. She had made many mistakes. She had three children by three different men and she didn't know where any of the three were. She had had a a job which she lost, she was fired and she had a home and she had just been evicted. And you know, she's unfolding this tale of woe. I'm beginning to think, okay, Chris, how are you gonna respond to this? And you know, there's certainly in a big church, you've got resources and they manage that mercy ministry very well. 
But Jesus, but Chris's first question was, after he was silent for a minute, he looked at her and said, why do you think Jesus has you here? And just let it sit. And of course, then the tears begin to flow. And he went on to share about the fact that, you know, you may be wringing your hands, but Jesus isn't. And he wants us to be confident and reminded every time we come in times of prayer and fellowship, he's in control. He's working things out in our life. We're called to be responsible. We're called to obey scripture. This is not a fatalism, but he's got things in control. You know, this is a table for those with shattered expectations. This is a table for people who don't necessarily have it all together. This is a table for those with failures, you know, with tragedies, with disease, with broken relationships, and the pain and brokenness that's in all our lives. Those are the people that Jesus wants to spend time with. Because this table isn't so much about us. It's he that wants to spend time with us. Can you imagine? The one who put the stars in their place wants to eat a meal with you. And he calls us to this time because number one, he's in control. But a second lesson is that he cherishes our fellowship. Jesus cherishes your fellowship. In Revelation, it speaks about the prayers of the saints being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Heavenly Father. Isn't that interesting? That very sensual picture, because like, presumably like us, God loves to smell things that are sweet. And that imagery is used to say that the prayers of the saints are sweet to Him. He likes them and he wants to cherishes this time with us. I've got, I'm now driving carpool for some grandchildren. And what I really like is when I pick them up, there's a second grader and a kindergartner, it's just spending time with them. They don't have to do what I want. Well, they don't do what I want usually, but just talking with them, interacting with them, hearing about their day for about the 10 minutes it takes to get between school and their house. I just like doing that. And we, when we pray, when we come to this time of fellowship, Jesus enjoys this. He enjoys us coming and spending time in his presence. It speaks, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks of this unprecedented intimacy. In John chapter six, this intimacy is graphically put on display when in John 6, 54, Jesus says bluntly, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Can you imagine what that sounded like to those Jewish listeners as they look at each other? What is he saying? Is he a cannibal, you know? And that's what he was accused of being. But no, in a graphic way, he's talking about in that time when we consume his flesh and we we drink of his blood, so to speak, think fellowship. The most intimate of fellowship we can enjoy on this planet with Jesus is in a time of prayer 
after the preaching of God's word as we share these elements together. And Jesus is teaching us that he cherishes our fellowship. You remember in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, the apostle Paul, then Saul, was um, converted and a bright light shone out of heaven. Do you remember the words that Paul, Saul, excuse me, the words that Saul heard? They were the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said this to Saul who was persecuting the church, imprisoning church members and delivering some over to death, according to the scripture. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting? What does it say? It's not hard. Why are you persecuting me? You see, when you persecute the church, Jesus takes it very personally. You're persecuting me. When you criticize Christians and, and uh, condemn Christians unjustly, you are condemning him, which by the way, is very important when we interact with other Christians and talk about other Christians. We need to remember, Jesus takes our fellow, his fellowship with them very, very carefully. So closely did Jesus identify with the lies of his followers that when persecution, difficulty, adversary fell on them, they fell on him. Jesus cherishes our fellowship. That's the intimacy he joys with us when we come to this table. Dane Ortland in his book, I hope you've read it, Gentle and Lowly. You need to if you haven't. He says this, and what, this is Dane Ortland, and I quote, and what did he, that is Jesus, do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart. He long, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. And we all can testify to the humaneness of his touch. A warm hug does something warm words of greeting alone cannot do. Ortland writes, but there's something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. That's part of what's going on here. This is all about our fellowship with Christ. He cherishes this, but it's life-changing because we're coming in the contact with Christ. At this table, Jesus wants to remind us he's in control despite our expectations, fail, failure. And secondly, he cherishes our fellowship because this is a meal for those that are haunted by not only failed expectations, but failure as well. We're all failures. Jesus has invited us to this meal. He knows our failures, our difficulty, our pain and our sin. And still, still he desires to be with us. He cherishes this, this time. It's a table for those who are haunted with failure. And thirdly, he not only in this passage cherishes our fellowship, he provides for our future. For our nourishment, it says, in growth and grace. You know, fear is a reality for most people. In pastoral care, you see this again and again. As people grow older, and they, we've got a few gray hairs here, but as people grow older, invariably fears begin to increase. 
watch the TV too much. You believe all the rumors that are coming down. You feel very vulnerable, especially as perhaps your spouse dies or your children have moved out and jobs, jobs are gone and things change so that fears are a very real part of growing older. But really fear is a part of all of our lives. And to this, the confession reminds us that we enjoy all the benefits to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. He purchased our salvation on the cross. But what's more, he also lavished all kinds of things, the privilege of prayer, of reading his word. But two things stand out clearly when Jesus died and left was that he sent his Holy Spirit. He sent his Holy Spirit. You know, have you ever thought of what it would be like to have actually lived and followed Jesus? What happens if you were with him? It would, it would be great to be able to, to watch him, watch him engage with people, to feel his compassion, to be able to touch him. And, uh, you know, I, at times it's thought, boy, wouldn't that have been remarkable to be able to there. But he promises, or he says later in the Gospels, it is better that I go away. In other words, what you and I have is superior to what those disciples have because we have the Holy Spirit who is teaching and training and nurturing and protecting and helping us grow in grace. That's what the lesson of John 16 is. Nevertheless, I tell you that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And uh, so therefore what happens is we don't uh, just try to imitate Jesus but he has equipped us with his Holy Spirit to supernaturally live out his attributes, his gifts, his fruit, if you will. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, gentleness. Those are lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So no longer are we simply um, followers, but we're supernatural representatives of him on this earth. He will send his Holy Spirit and then the promise when he leaves, he will intercede for us. He cherishes this time. He is in control and he provides for our future through the Holy Spirit and through times of prayer. Every moment of every day. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives always lives to make intercession for them. In your good times, Jesus is praying for you. In your bad times, Jesus is praying for you. In times of temptation, Jesus is praying for you. In times of failure, Jesus is praying for you. You know, almost um, on, uh, as a pastoral care pastor at Briarwood, on every Saturday night, I had the responsibility of going back over what's called our hospital list where we list people who've been in the hospital in the previous week and people who may have lost loved ones. And I copy down those names and send them to our executive pastor, uh, Bruce Stallings. And he would stand up on Sunday morning during his pastoral prayer and he would pray through that list. Sometimes it might only contain three or four or five people. Sometimes it might be 15 people. But he would pray by name for them and it's pretty remarkable because not once in 17 years did anyone ever complain. 
just the privilege of the church gathering together because this was not an announcement of people being in the hospital. He would often not even use that term. It was just your name being heard and you being prayed for by a large congregation in two different services. And people were just breathtaking. I think of sometimes new people, I occasionally would have people say, I appreciate so much Bruce praying for me. He didn't know it comes through me, but uh, it was such a remarkable blessing for people. But that's small stuff. That's nothing like who's praying for you on a daily basis as Jesus is lifting up your name and praying for you. Can you imagine Jesus doing that for us? Romans 8, 24, that he is interceding for you. He, He cherishes you. And he's equipping us for the future that he has planned for us. It's going to be a short future, but he wants us to serve him. And now he wants us to come to his table and be nourished. Let me close with a a plea from a Puritan by the name of uh, Thomas Boston. On April 27th, 1720, he was giving his discourse, that's what they called a sermon, on this passage out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a summary of what the scripture teaches on the Lord's Supper. It was a time when epidemics were raging around him. He lived in Ettrick, Ettrick, England. And all his family at this particular time had come under this particular uh, plague or uh, epidemic. And some died. He never got it. But some died in his family. And under that kind of tension, under that kind of societal difficulty, Thomas Boston invited people to the Lord's table with these words. Prepare, he writes, prepare for this solemn ordinance. If God shall allow us the opportunity, delay not a moment to give yourself to the Lord by receiving and embracing the Lord Jesus as your savior and Redeemer vouching or declaring him as such in his holy sacrament. Let mortality and sickness that so generally prevails around us excite you to be more vigorous than ever in preparing for this solemn occasion as perhaps it may be the last many of us may partake of. Oh then, let us prepare to keep the feast in due manner. Let us prepare to keep the feast in due manner. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you've got it, that you've got our backs, that you're the sovereign Lord, that you care about us, that whether we come looking forward to this time of fellowship, that you do. With failed expectations, we may come. With struggles of sin and temptation, we may come. And you rejoice in our presence. And I just ask that you will take this meal and have its work in us through your Holy Spirit that it will nourish and and strengthen us spiritually and that you will use it for your glory. And we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.